So this morning, we are finishing our series entitled Engage. And today we are finishing talking about the glory of God. Now, if that topic seems maybe a little bit strange for this particular series, I think it is because of the fact that the topic of the glory of God has been largely overlooked in the contemporary church. And I don't know whether or not that is an issue as far as people trying to downplay the glory of God. I don't think there is some vast conspiracy on that side. But I do believe that the topic of God's glory is not addressed as much simply for a pragmatic reason. That is, God's glory does not seem to be immediately relevant to what people are walking through. So, for example, if you're going through marriage struggles and I were to advertise that we're going to be doing a series on a happy home life, that's going to be a series It seems like it immediately addresses what you're walking through. Or maybe if you're going through some work struggles or maybe there's personal attacks against your character and you were to hear that there was a series of messages that are going to be focused on going through and persevering through trials, that seems golden for you at that particular moment. It seems as though God's word is addressing exactly what you're walking through. It's like, yes, that's what I need to hear about. That's what I need at this point in my life. But there's not a lot of people who wake up in the morning and feel as though their greatest need for the day is to focus on the glory of God. It seems theological. It seems good for sure. But it is it absolutely relevant and necessary for everyday disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, if your view of the glory of God is, I think it is good and it is theological, but I don't know if I need to focus on it that much, I want to do my best in the next 30 minutes to change your perspective on that. I, I want us to walk away from this service being able to sing more free than we just sang a moment ago. I want us to walk away from this service with a greater view of the holiness and the glory of God than we've ever had in our lives. I want us to walk away changed because we have been in the presence of God. Now, what I'm going to try to do is give four, like in this introduction, four very practical reasons, just to kind of whet a person's appetite a little bit about why this is such a practical piece for every single disciple of Jesus Christ. Why is studying the glory of God such an important topic? Well, here's the first of those. We gain greater perspective by focusing on the glory of God. If you've ever asked the question, God, what are you doing in this moment? If you've ever wondered, how could anything good come out of these circumstances? You are asking perspective questions. You're wanting to understand. You're wanting to know. You're wanting to gain a better perspective of what's going on. And whenever you study the, the focus on the glory of God, you find that it provides a better perspective of the bigger story of the Bible. It, it provides insight into the ultimate purpose of life. It also provides perspective into how God can be glorified even amid tragedy. You gain better perspective when you focus on the glory of God. Uh, here's another one. We get to know God more by focusing on the glory of God. The further you walk with God, the more you get to know him. The more you get to know him, the more you'll find this. He has an unrelenting passion for his glory. His glory is the why behind every what. Why did he create the world? Why did he choose Israel to be his chosen people? Why did he send the plagues 
against Egypt? Why would he redeem a sinful humanity? Here's another one. Why does he allow evil to continue to exist? Every one of those questions is answered primarily with, it's about his glory. It is about his name. It is about his renown among the nations. It, it all comes back to the glory of God. Here's another one. Our heart is revealed when we focus on the glory of God. The more we see how everything in life, everything in creation, all points back to God and his glory, listen to this, the more we begin to realize how much we've made it about ourselves. And that is an uncomfortable discovery. Studying the glory of God is like spiritual heart surgery. It begins to reveal hidden motives. It, it reveals areas where we've turned inward as opposed to focusing upward. Studying the glory of God, it helps us so that we understand a little bit more about where our heart is really at. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anybody desires to come after him, let him deny himself. You'll find that the further you pursue Jesus, the more he takes you away from a focus on self and more towards being motivated by the glory of God. Here's another piece. Maturity is developed by focusing on the glory of God. Prior to Christ, our focus, our natural tendency was almost exclusively on self. We did what was best for me. How is this going to impact me? And then you get saved, and God is now a part of your life. So your focus moves from me to me and God. And you're like, my life is better now because God is in it. But then you keep walking with Jesus, and all of a sudden this light comes on in your mind. You're like, God has to be first. I got to be second. So now it goes from me to me and God to God and me. God's first, I'm second. And that seems to work for a while until you keep studying your Bible and you keep getting to know him. And the further you go, all of a sudden a passage like Galatians 2.20 stands out where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And at that moment, you find there's another transition. It's not about me at all. It's all about him. It's not about my desires and my wishes and my time and my plans. It's about him. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Now, that is not saying that you die physically at that moment. It's not saying that your giftings have died, your personality has died. What it is saying is the essence of who you are at the core your identity is found in Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. And as a result of that, it's not about us. It is about him. It's about what he wants. It's about his plans. It's about his resources. It's about his desires. So now you have that final transition. Starts with me. Then it's me and God. Then it's God and me. And eventually, it's just God. That's the natural progression of Christian maturity. And when you focus on the glory of God, it walks you down that path so that you end with, it's all about him. It's all about him. God's glory, it might not seem immediately relevant to a lot of people, but it is essential for anyone who seeks better perspective, who desires to know God deeply, who wants their heart to be right before God, and who aspires to move towards Christian maturity. On an individual level, focus on the glory of God is huge. But on a corporate level, it is equally huge. 
It is the why behind the what. Why did we gather this morning for worship? Why do we sing? Why do we study our Bible? Why do we give of resources? Why do we plant churches? Why do we take mission trips? We do it that we might know Christ and make him known. Know Christ, make him known. And here's the thing. The further you move towards knowing Christ, the more he is glorified through you. I I love John Piper's phrase on this, and that is, he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When you're walking with Jesus and you're loving every second of it and you're sharing with others what's going on, here's what's happening. God's glory keeps reflecting off of you back to others. It keeps reflecting. By the way, you're going to hear me use the word reflect. The reason for that is because there's nothing that you and I could ever do to add to the glory of God. God's glory is not deficient. For you and I, all we simply do is reflect his glory back to him. So that's on a corporate level. This is absolutely important. The more we get to know him, the more he is magnified and recognized and glorified in and through our lives. If we're to move forward on knowing Christ and making him known among the nations, we have to know the why behind the what. So I invite you at this time, if you would, go with me in your Bibles. We're going to primarily be in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. How do we make a concept like the glory of God, a concept that could easily be considered obscure or theological or confusing in nature? How do you make a concept like the glory of God something that is so understandable and so valued that the moment somebody asks you, why do you do that, the first thought that comes to mind is it's about his glory. How do we make that transition in a very practical way? So if you would, look in Isaiah chapter 6. I am speaking this morning on the subject of engage the purpose. And as you're looking for that text, I'm going to read just a little bit of what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Second half of that verse, here's what it says. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now that in mind, look at what it says, Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1 and following. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Heavenly Father, may our eyes see you this morning. God, help us to not walk out the way we walked in. God, even if we were in a good position spiritually, Lord, there's always another step in intimacy with you. God, would you allow your spirit and your word 
to capture hearts today for how glorious you are. In Jesus' name, amen. For my eyes have seen the King. For my eyes have seen the King. Focusing on the glory of God requires us to see the King. There are some concepts that are better communicated by what we see than by what we say. And that's the case right here. I could preach a month of Sundays on trying to explain every facet of the glory of God. Or you and I can join with Isaiah and we can see the king. When you see the king, you see his glory. When you get a clear view of who he is and his character and his position and his holiness and his glory, when you, you get a clear view of that, things are more understandable. So in chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah describes how God's people have rejected their God, their Holy One, and how they rejected his word. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 24. So when you get into Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of God. And in this vision, he is symbolically purified as a messenger who is going to be sent out by God. Now, now listen to this. In this particular vision, he is going to be sent out, listen to his audience, to God's spiritually insensitive people. Not the world. God's spiritually insensitive people. According to verses 10 through 13, Isaiah was to preach a message until judgment swept through the land, until the bulk of God's people were hauled off into exile, until only a remnant of God's people remained. There is nothing about that assignment that sounds fun to me. His was to preach bad news. Praise the Lord on this side of the cross, we get a chance to preach good news. His job was to keep preaching as judgment swept. His job was, as you're getting hauled off, to keep preaching. It's because of the holiness of God. It's because of the righteousness of God. It is ultimately going to be for the glory of God. That was his assignment. So it should not surprise us at all when we get into Isaiah chapter 6, and it begins on a somber note. King Uzziah has died. Now, he reigned for 52 years in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was considered to be the last great king of that kingdom. Under King Uzziah's reign, the Philistines and the Arabians and the Ammonites were all brought into subjection. Under his reign, the nation had been materially blessed by God. Uzziah was a well-loved, well-liked, well-respected king. So when King Uzziah dies, anxiousness comes into the heart of the people. Who's going to replace King Uzziah? Are we going to be taken into, into captivity by our enemies? Are we going to be in a position where we lose our material wealth? Who would ever be able to step into the shoes of King Uzziah? He's been here for 52 years. We know where he's at. We know what he does. God has blessed. God has moved. Who's ever going to take his position? Now, it's during this time that Isaiah has an incredible discovery. Even if the outlook is bad, the uplook is always good. <laughs> that is, yes, 
A great king has vacated his earthly throne, but the greatest king is still firmly seated on his heavenly throne. From heaven's vantage point, there's no reason to worry because the king is seated and the king is exalted and the king is sovereignly reigning over the universe. The whole earth, as he says, is full of his what? His glory. His glory. So what can we learn about God's glory from seeing the exalted king? I'm going to give you three statements. Here's the first. God's glory is never diminished by circumstances. Never. So yes, there's uncertainty because Uzziah had died, but the text says the whole earth is full of his glory. It's full of his glory. God's glory was not diminished by Uzziah's death. God's glory was not diminished by the rebellion of his people in chapters 1 through 5. God's glory was not diminished by needing to send his people into exile, verses 10 through 13. His glory is always full. He is fully glorious when things are good, and he is fully glorious when things are bad. You and I can obey God and prove him glorious, or we can disobey God and prove him glorious. His glory meter stays at 100%. The whole earth is full of his glory. The fullness of his glory is graphically contrasted in this throne room encounter. The people were sad because their beloved king had died. They were anxious. The circumstances seemed bleak. And yet, the scene around the throne of God is anything but bleak and uncertain and sad. Isaiah saw God seated like a king upon his throne. His throne is elevated and it is exalted. The enormous train of his robe, it is filling the temple. Our God is not just making it by. He's not anxious on the edge of his throne, but rather he is sovereignly seated and he is fully exalted even when circumstances don't look good for us. And then it says, the seraphim, angelic beings, they hover around him continually declaring his praise. As they declare his holiness and as they declare his glory, it says their voices shake the foundation. Let that sink in for just a moment. Their voices, not the voice of God, their voices are shaking the foundation. These are not your cute little cherubs with rosy cheeks playing a harp. These are mighty angelic beings. Their voice is shaking the foundation. It's a picture that is filled with terror and awe. In some ways, you almost feel as though Isaiah might have gotten too close in that vision. Now, the scene, it portrays a contrast between our perspective on earth and God's reality in heaven. Even in our darkest moments... He is still sovereignly seated. He is still constantly praised. He is still highly exalted. He is still completely holy. And he is still infinitely glorious. If there's ever a time you need to remind yourself of the throne room, it's 2021. When you look around, problem after problem. And when you look into culture and 
and it's sin and it's division and it's hatred and it's lying and deception and you look around, it's so easy, it's so easy when you look at what's happening in the world to feel as though the sky is falling. But did you know as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have no reason for pessimism? Why? Because everything we are seeing is God's plan unfolding before our eyes. Every day you look around, you're watching prophecy unfold. You're watching scripture come alive. You're you're watching the gospel reach the nations. You're, You're watching the kingdom of God expand. You're watching God moving among his people. Everything that you're seeing, he's already said, this is going to happen before I return. So every time you see it, say, thank you, come Lord Jesus. Thank you, come Lord Jesus. We have no reason to be pessimistic as a follower of Christ. It doesn't mean we don't go through difficult times. It means when our eyes come off of our circumstances and look at that exalted king upon the throne, we can say, God, you are still fully glorious. You're firmly seated and sovereign over this universe. What else can we see and learn about God's glory from the exalted king? Here's your second statement. God's glory and holiness are continually declared. Did you know a part of the reason why we get a chance to worship and declare how good God is day by day, not just on Sunday. By the way, you bring your worship to church. You don't come to church to worship. If you aren't worshiping before you came, you probably won't once you get here. That's for free. God's glory And his holiness are continually declared. The seraphim are declaring that God is holy and he's glorious. The Bible speaks of different angelic beings. Describes them as angels, archangels, principalities, powers, cherubim, seraphim. This is the only specific place found in the Bible that the word seraphim or seraphs are mentioned. The Hebrew word of seraph, it means the burning ones to burn. Now Isaiah tells us that these angelic beings, they have six wings. With one pair, they they cover their face. Now based upon what we can tell from this one text, it's nothing here that would seem as though they have been in rebellion against God. It's not that they're covering their face out of shame or out of guilt, but rather they're covering their face from the greater brightness, the intense radiance of the glory of God who is on the throne. He tells us that the burning ones are having to cover their face because of the brightness of our God on his throne. Next time you see bad news and you see humanity, a person raise their fist against God in righteousness, let that image sink in. Our God is not shaking in his boots. Our God is not worried about how it's going to turn out. Our God is sovereign. He is in control. With one pair of wings, they hide their face. With one pair of wings, they cover their feet, believed to be a sign of humility. And with another pair of wings, they hover in readiness to depart on any errand to which God may send them. As interesting as their looks may be, what's more profound is the words they say. They continually declare the holiness and the glory of God based on verse number three. In fact, it says, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The repetition of a word is a way of expressing a superlative that, that is something of being of highest quality or highest degree. So as they say, holy, 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 here's what they're saying. He is completely holy. He is totally holy. He is absolutely holy. He is the holiest of all. That's what they're continually saying. Holiness, it speaks of a separateness or a distinction from. When it is used of God, it means that God is totally separate from. He is distinct from every other part of creation. When the word holy is used of the Bible, it means the Bible it is separate from. It is distinct from every other religious book, every other writing. When the Bible says that his children, his family, they're, they're a holy people, set apart. That means we are to be distinct from, separate than the rest of the world. That, that's what this word holiness describes. And it also says the seraphim declare the whole earth is full of his glory. If you're wondering what a definition of the glory of God is, let me give it to you. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's many perfections. It is the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's many perfections. Now, I want you to apply that definition right back into this text. As the seraphim are saying, that God is holy, holy, holy. As they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. It's full of his infinite beauty and the greatness of God's many perfections. That is, everywhere you look, it is a gallery of the glory of God. Everywhere you look, God's infinite beauty is on display. Everywhere you look, your eyes are taking in God's many perfections from the beauty of color to the vastness of his created beings, from the smallest atom to the largest star, from insects that are pollinating the flowers to salmon who are traveling to their birthplace, from the heights of the heavens to the depths of the sea, from the complexities of the human brain to the simplicity of a jellyfish. It's all saying the same thing. God is glorious. God is glorious. God is glorious. That's what it's saying. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's the same story that is echoed on every page of your Bible. It says in Isaiah 43, God created us for his glory. Jeremiah 13, he called Israel for his glory. Psalm 106, he brought his people out of Egypt for his glory. Ezekiel 20, he protected them in the wilderness for his glory. Habakkuk chapter 2, it says that he will fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Romans 9, it says his wrath makes known the wealth of his glory. Romans 3, it says, our sin is falling short of his glory. Isaiah 43, he forgives our sin for the sake of his glory. John chapter 12, he suffered on the cross so that the Father would be glorified. Romans chapter 11, everything that happens is to rebound for the glory of God. Jesus is coming again in the fullness of his glory. It's all about his glory. Everywhere you look, every facet of creation, every page of the Bible, every millisecond of eternity is saying, our God is glorious. Our God is glorious. 
Is it any reason that when you go over into 1 Corinthians 10, it says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God? Is there any other reason other than his glory? Here's the last piece. God's glory reveals our true state before him. Our true state. Now, this is going to sound strange, but give me just a moment to try to unpack this thought. An accurate perspective of self is vital for human flourishing. An accurate view of self. When somebody knows how they've been gifted and where their strengths lie, it allows them to be able to focus into the right things in the right way. You know what you're good at and you know what you're bad at. You know where you're struggling, you know where you're doing well. And when you know that, it allows you to move towards your created potential. But when you have a false perception of self and of your gifting and of your true state before God, you might think everything is great and it's not. In fact, this is kind of like the spiritual version of American Idol. Give me a moment to pull this out. There's some people who are singing because their mama told them they could sing. My baby can sing. And their baby can't sing. But their baby don't know they can't sing. Because they've been told, you, you're good. And what happens? They get on a stage and a bunch of judges have to tell them what the rest of the world already knows. You can't sing. I promise there's a point in this. When Isaiah sees the king on his throne, he has an accurate view of himself. Nobody has to tell him his true state. He says, woe is me. For I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm destroyed. And then he tells us why. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. How would our worship be different on a Sunday if God gave us Judgment Day clarity? of the state of our soul before him. The phrase, I am ruined, is also translated, I must be silent. Let that sink in. By saying I must be silent, he's not talking about his future prophetic ministry. His lips are going to be purified. He's going to be sent out on mission by God. But what he's talking about here is, I'm ruined. I must be silent. He's in a moment of worship here. He, he's seen a vision of worship around the throne of God. It's God's angelic beings are declaring his holiness and declaring his glory. It's in the temple of God. It's at the throne of God. They're, they're continually praising God. He's in a moment of worship, and as their lips praise God, his lips must be silent. Why? Remember chapters 1 through 5. 
They're about the rebellion of God's people. God said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, the sons he reared and brought up have revolted against me. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, they have abandoned the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 24, they have rejected the law of the Lord and despised the word of the Holy One. Isaiah knows how wicked the people of God have been. But remember, he says, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, in this moment, as the angels are singing and worshiping God, it's almost like he gets this moment of clarity, like he says, I can't sing what they sing because I've been amongst the people that have been rebelling and those who have rejected the word and those who have rejected God. I can't sing what they sing with integrity because I know the true state of how I am, so I must be silent. How would worship services be different today if God's people had a fresh view of the holiness of God? God's glory revealed Isaiah's true state. But I want you to listen. If you, you walk away from this and you're thinking, man, I just got beat to death with the book of Isaiah this morning. I'm a horrible person. No, listen. God never breaks us to leave us broken. He breaks us to remove what's holding us back from knowing him deeply and his glory being fully reflected through us. And as he puts us back together, it's back together the right way. So Isaiah's conviction, conviction of his state, led to Isaiah's confession, which led to Isaiah's cleansing, which led to Isaiah's commissioning. That is, this encounter with God, it moves him so that he can be greatly used by God. The issue is never, will God be glorified? Yes, he will be glorified. The issue is, will our lives be a clear reflection of God's glory? Can people look into our lives and say that God's beauty and his many perfections are on display? If we fail to walk in light of God's glory, we never get an accurate view of ourselves. We go on singing like there's no sin. We go on living like all is fine. We go on acting as though we have it all together. And in a moment where somebody might challenge it, we're, our thought is, well, at least I'm better than that guy. But that guy is not the standard. God is that standard. That's why Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's how we're going to close out. Pray. In this time of invitation, pray and ask God, where do I have false perception in my life? Where am I comparing myself to the wrong standard? Where in my life am I not reflecting the glory of God to those who are around me? As a church, if we are to effectively and collectively make Christ known among the nations, 
we have to be united on some very specific truths. There has to be essential places of understanding and focus and efforts. We need to be collectively on the same page that the mission is to make disciples who know Christ and make him known. The message is the gospel of grace, not the gospel of best works and great intentions. Gospel of grace. The kingdom is God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. Not about our church, it's about his kingdom. The Bible is our authority in all matters of faith and practice. The power is bold prayer that flows from deep trust. The family is a united biblical community of covenant believers who respect, love, and serve each other. The purpose is the glory of God. Ultimately, if God uses Sherwood to greatly make Christ known among the nations with tens of thousands of people who come to know him, disciples being made, churches planted, if God sovereignly chooses to do that, it's never supposed to be that the name of Sherwood is now the focus. It should be that by the time it's done, people are just saying, God did something great. God is awesome. God is glorious. God can use anyone to accomplish his purposes. And if he chooses to use us, we are blessed to be on for the journey. No Christ, make him known. No Christ, make him known. Say it with me. No Christ, make him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask at this time that, God, our hearts have been laid bare before you. We ask, God, that, that you would give us clarity of anything in our lives that could possibly be redirecting your glory away from you and towards something else. And God, I recognize it's a hard message. I recognize that, that this is one that every single day we have ample opportunity to go back before you and to, to ask that you would reveal things that have crept in that we've not recognized. God, may we not run from the hard stuff. But Lord, may we fully surrender knowing that pain in the moment can be used of you for greater reflection of your glory in the future God may we not play games with you may we be a people who desperately desire to know you deeply and are willing to give our breath our life, our resources, our time anything that we might have in order that we might make you known among the nations. God, would you use us? God, would you give us a glimpse of what could be? God, there's enough talent and resources and passion in this room to take the world by storm. Oh God, use us. Help us to engage so that we might make you known. God, do what only you can. 
because if you don't do it, it's never going to happen. God, move our hearts for the things that move yours. In Jesus' name. His head's still bowed, eyes still closed. I'm going to ask that the pastors would make their way to the front of each of these aisles. In just a moment, is going to be this song of invitation. For some people, it might be that the thing God is laying on your heart right now is that you need to spend time in your chair reflecting on if anything is standing in the way of God being fully glorified through you. For others, you might say, I don't know him, but I desperately want to. Maybe today you, re- you saw your true state, and that is you're lost, and you want to know God. You want to know forgiveness. Come and tell one of these pastors in just a moment. It might be for others that you just need to find a place at the altar and pray and say, God, I'm sorry for things I've made it. Whatever it might be that God's leading you to do, I don't want to try to manufacture a movement of God, but I do want to encourage you to move as the Spirit of God prompts you. I'm going to ask you, if you would, stand where you are, and we're going to have the the praise band lead us in the song of invitation. The altar is open for you.